So what is true love? Is true love just an emotion that is felt? Uh, is it something that will sustain you uh, through a long and, and happy marriage in, in life? Uh, what is true love? Last week we talked a little bit about Jonathan and David and the idea of selfless love that we see in their friendship, the relationship that they had. And we talked a little bit last week about the idea of Hollywood and, and, and the entertainment industry, uh, of love that uh, is there through the euphoria, but when it's time to move on, it's okay to go ahead and move on. Is that biblical love? Is that the love that we see exemplified in Scripture? Is that the type of love that God wants us to have for one another, for others in our lives? There is perhaps no greater example of love than the love that we see in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. And as you turn to that chapter, we're going this morning to think about the depth of God's love that is revealed in these two verses. And then we want to think about replicating God's love in our own lives. So let's start by thinking about 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, and the depth of God's love that's revealed here. Notice what the text says, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a prop the propitiation for our sins. As we look at this passage, we're introduced to this idea of love. And John claims something here about God's love. The wider context is how we ought to love and that God is love. If we back up, for instance, in verse 7, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love God, or does not love, does not know God, for God is love. So we're told that this is the character, the quality of God, is love. And it's within this context that John tells us, this is how much he loves you, of what he was willing to do. And what was it that he was wanting to do? He wanted to have his love uh, for us, and he sent his son to die for us. And this is how we can know God's love. It's revealed in us. But this idea of being revealed in us, as New American Standard translates it, does not refer to a, a, a mystic feeling uh, or something that mystically takes place in your heart or in your soul or in your mind, but rather it's the idea of his love among us or within us, plural. Uh, and, and it shows us that God is not distant, uh, but he, that he showed his love in reality, when you think about what Jesus did for us, when you think about what God did for us by sending his son to die for us so that we could have life and, and endure all those things, really that shows us how much God loves us uh, and wants to be a part of us, wants us to be a part of him. He's not a distant God. This is God's love among us, revealed his love among us. When you think about this compared to the Gospel of John, 
uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, when John there uh, is talking about uh, how Jesus came to dwell among us, uh, he says that he made his dwelling among us. He walked among men and made his dwelling among us. Folks, God wants to have that connection with us. We think of God abstractly because it's hard for us to, to see God and to think about God. Uh, and, and yet God has gone to, to great lengths for us to be able to identify with him by sending his son in the flesh to endure all the things that you and I endure, to be tempted by, with all the things that you and I have been tempted with, and to reveal to us exactly what his love is, and to show us who God is by being able to look at Jesus. And now for us, centuries later, to be able to see the things written about Jesus in his life in the New Testament. God's love, his love, is among us. And so as we look at what John has to say here, uh, he says, how was it revealed? It was revealed in him sending Jesus. When you look again at the, at the text, uh, he sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. This idea of only begotten refers to the uniqueness of God, the uniqueness of Jesus, rather, and who he is. Some of our older translations, the King James translates this Greek word, monogenes, as begotten, which implies uh, the process of giving birth or the process of being created. Uh, but the more correct translation is the idea of, of one and only, a unique son, something special about this one. Not that the child was, for instance, uh, begotten. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, uh, verses 17 through 19, we, we read, for instance, uh, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, uh, who had received the promises, was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. And what's important about this context is the same word, monogenes, is used for only begotten son, or only begotten, as the American Standard translates it. But we know Isaac was not Abraham's only son, right? Because he had also had Ishmael by Hagar. Uh, and he had other sons through uh, uh, his second wife after Sarah died. And so Abraham, Isaac was not Abraham's only son. He was not his only begotten son, but he was his monogenes in the sense that he was the unique one. And Hebrews tells us, because it was through him that all the descendants would be called, or all his descendants would be called. There was something unique and special about Isaac. And in the same way, when we talk about Jesus being the monogenes of God, that refers to the uniqueness of Jesus. In fact, Fitzmaier in his lexicon, now and Lita in their lexicon, Thayer in his lexicon, Gerard Pinderek, in his article that he wrote in the New Testament Studies, 1995, studying this word monogenes, all suggest and all seem to agree on the idea that monogenes means one of a kind or one of a class, especially of things, especially of things, but even of children. When we look at the New Testament, John only uses the Greek word huios, or son, referring to the Son of God, 
and applies that to Jesus. Whenever he refers to, the, to men as children of God, he uses the more generic techno to refer to that. There was something unique about Jesus. And, and as we're thinking about 1 John chapter 4, and it talks about sending his only begotten son, he's talking about the uniqueness of Jesus, that he loved us so much that he was willing to send him. And what we see as we think about the uniqueness of Jesus and his relationship to God is that Jesus was preexistent. He was preexistent, meaning he reigned with God previously. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, uh, when Paul again is talking to the church at Philippi, and he says, Have the same attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being found made uh, in, the, in the form of a, of a man, offered himself on the cross and became obedient, even to the point of death, death on a cross. But did you catch the first part of that? Who, although he existed in the form of God, he was pre-existent. He was God in heaven. And so he was there in, in the form of God. He was God. He literally existed. He had an equality with God. And yet he humbled himself and took the form of man. In other words, he existed as God before taking the form of humanity. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, the Hebrew writer says that it was through Jesus that God made the world. John tells us in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And a little bit later on in verse 14, John tells us uh, that that Word was the Lamb of God. That Word was Jesus Christ. A little bit later on in John 1, verse 29, says, the next day John saw Jesus coming. He says, this is the one that I've been telling you about who existed before I did or had a higher rank than I did because he existed before I did. This is the Word. This is the Lamb of God. And so Jesus was pre-existing. Jesus is the one who created the world. And so what we find from this is that Jesus is deity. Jesus was deity. Chapter Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, as already mentioned, talks about he existed in the form of God. When we think about Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it's there that we read that in Him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Have you ever let, tied that on? Have you ever really uh, let your mind go to that? That in Him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form? All that is God was in Jesus as he walked on this earth as a human being, John, Paul says there in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, he was in, all that is God was in Jesus in bodily form, in his human, in his human side. And it's important that we look at this. Oh, my, my Greek didn't come across. Okay, there's not really dollar signs there. I'm sorry. 
Uh, it worked on the other computer, I'm sorry. Uh, the fonts didn't come through. Okay, uh, but basically there's two different Greek words, and, and the first one is theatos, uh, which uh, uh, means the deity or the rank of God. The second one is theates, uh, which can mean div divinity or divine quality. But the first one is what's used, which is deity, the rank of God. John is, or Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 2, 9, that Jesus has that rank of God. He is deity. Not that he just has some divine qualities, but that he is the rank of God, that he is God. And in Hebrews 1 and 2, as we've already mentioned, uh, we're told that he is the exact representation of God, that he is the radiance of his glory. Jesus came for the purpose so that people might live through him. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, uh, we learn that this was God's plan from the beginning. And we also learn in John chapter 10 uh, that Jesus says, uh, I came to this earth to lay down my life. I lay it down on my own initiative. No one takes it from me, and I have authority to take it back again. Because he is God. He does this because he wants to do this. Jesus came for a purpose. Jesus wanted to come so that he could be a sacrifice for our sins. As we come back to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10, uh, uh, John tells us, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Some translations may say atoning sacrifice, but, but truly it's this idea of propitiation. That's a word we never use. We don't know what that means. I mean, you can look it up in a dictionary, I suppose. It's only used twice in the New Testament, here and in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 12 talks about Jesus as a propitiation for our sins. Webster defines the word propitiation as gaining favor of an offended, oftentimes, deity. And so others in world religions would talk about a propitiation, gaining favor for an offended deity. Lau and Ed in their Greek lexicon say that propitiation is essentially a process, uh, excuse me, a process by which one does a favor to a person in order to make him or her favorably disposed, rather, is a means of forgiveness. Bouchel in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says that the word means more than a process, but is God setting aside guilt. Some translations, I've already mentioned, use the phrase atoning sacrifice, and the idea is that Jesus' work has done more than act as a sacrifice, but is a covering, a setting aside of our sin. setting aside. It's a covering of sin. It's a sacrifice in place of our own, of what we deserve. And it's a way of gaining favor with God. The impact of all of this is that God's love is real for us. He's not just a distant God out for justice or vengeance. But rather, He loves us so much that He sent His Son in human form, to take on our guilt, to carry the burden of our sin, to carry the burden of, of, of our condemnation by enduring all the things that he endured on the cross, thereby removing my, my debt and your debt and everyone's individual debt for their own sin. It's love because he did this because he was motivated by love, 
rather than waiting for us to come to love him. Did you catch that in John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10? Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. It's easy to love someone that always cares for you. It's easy to love someone that always gives you attention. It's easy to love someone who always says the right thing and does the right thing. It's harder to love somebody who slaps you in the face. It's harder to love somebody who says, I don't really care what you think. It's harder to, to, to love someone uh, who's always just looking out for their own welfare, their own ideas, their own desires. And that's who we are. We're the ones that live life according to, hey, this is what I want to do before we became Christians. We're the ones that said, hey, you know, this sounds like a good idea. This looks like this is going to taste good. This looks like this is going to feel good. This looks like this is going to sound good. And so we made decisions based on me and what I want, what's going to satisfy my desires out of disregard for God. We had made ourselves an enemy to God, and yet he loved us so much that while we were in that state of thinking, he sent his son to die for us and to carry what should have been our judgment that we could escape it so that we could spend an eternity with us. And as we look at what some of these terms are saying, what some of these uh, lexiconographers are, are saying to us is that this idea of a propitiation, it's not just a sacrifice, but it was a, a real setting aside of the guilt of the debt. It was a real process of forgiveness that included all of Jesus' life work. Before the cross, up to the cross, on the cross, and after the cross. That process of setting it aside, that process of covering over that guilt, that debt. It happened at a time when according to Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, while we were yet enemies with God, Christ died for us. How can we replicate God's love for us? How can we replicate the fact that while we were saying, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, with our choices, with our life, with the way that we thought, God's love comes bursting through? How can we replicate that in the way that we deal with others? I want us to think about this idea. On the one hand, the context of what John is saying in 1 John chapter 4 relates to our relationship with other Christians. Notice again what he says in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for, our love, is from, for love is from God. In verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God lo so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so John is saying, based on what, what we see from God, based on what we see from Jesus, in, in their love for us, that's how we ought to love one another. Verse 11, he says, If God loves, so loved us, we ought to love one another in the same way. So ought we to love one another. Obviously, then we are to treat each other 
with a self-sacrificing attitude. If this is a standard of love, what about our family relationships? What is the example that we see in Jesus? While God on earth, he was willing to humble himself to provide a way of restoration. Sometimes in our marriages, in our relationships, we think only of self over our relationship. We think only of self in contrast to the other person. But what Paul's telling us in Philippians chapter 2, what John's telling us in 1 John chapter 4, is that while we were in that state of, of having separated ourselves from God, he loved us so much that he's willing to go through these steps, these, this very selfless action of coming to this earth, taking on humanity, suffering all the things that he suffered. And in the same way in our relationships with others, John tells us if that's how God loves us, that's how we need to love one another. Selflessly. Selflessly. Thinking of others above ourselves. And isn't that very difficult to do? Uh, that's so hard for us to do because that's not how we've been trained in our culture. Sometimes siblings hold on to grudges. Not willing to, to reconcile. Sometimes we uh, are are very self-centered in our actions. And sometimes we're those individuals uh, that, uh, that we just carry those grudges all through life. I think I've mentioned the story before of, of uh, my, my grandmother was one of 18 kids, 18 siblings. And uh, she tells a story of, of a couple sisters that didn't talk to each other for years uh, over something that, that happened. And neither one of them could even remember what it was that has, has started the thing. But Years on to adulthood, they, they just didn't even bother to talk. How sad is that? How sad is that? I guess if you have 18 siblings, you just go get another one to love, I guess. But uh, how sad is that? What we also see in 1 John is the role of confession. In 1 John chapter 1, and verse 9, we are told to confess our, our sins, and Jesus is faithful to forgive us. The idea of propitiation is acknowledging wrong. As we think about our role of loving one another as Christ has loved us, part of that love is forgiveness and covering over a sin. And folks, that's not necessarily easy to do either. But the first step is acknowledging that there is a wrong, that there is a hurt. Sometimes we just like to deny it. There's a difference between covering over, meaning I'm just going to let that go. I'm going to forget about that. That's different from denial. Denial is the refusing to acknowledge that something happened. The covering over is, okay, this happened. Now let's get past it. And, and so the first step is acknowledging that wrong or that hurt. If you hurt your spouse, if you hurt another loved one, if you hurt someone you work with, if you do something that violates uh, someone's trust, there needs to be an acknowledgement of that. And the propitiation requires that acknowledgement because it is paying the guilt or paying the debt price for someone else. And so this idea is acknowledging something bad happened. It needs to be addressed. But what Jesus did was pay the price for the guilt. Sometimes we think of forgiveness and, and want to pretend that something never happened. The Old Testament is full of examples of those who refuse to acknowledge wrong and sin that, that occurred in relationships. 
The result of Jesus' love is that he paid the just debt for our violating the relationship that we had with him in order to restore that relationship. If we want to restore relationships that are broken, we must address the hurt and be willing to reconcile even though it's not in our self-interest. It was not in God's self-interest. God doesn't need anything from us. God doesn't have to have a relationship with us, but he does love us. This isn't an equal relationship where we're giving something to God that, that he needs. There is no self-serving reason for Jesus to say, I need to go die on the cross to restore this relationship with these folks. He just did it because he loves us. And so forgiveness sometimes is a selfless act. Instead of seeking a, a punitive remedy, instead we seek to heal the relationship. For the one who has done wrong, sometimes there needs to be an acknowledgement of that wrong. I don't deserve reconciliation. Or what, I can, do, what can I do to cover the debt? is acknowledgement, I did something wrong, and I need to fix that. For the injured party, the example of Jesus, it says, well, even though I, I have a right to demand X, to demand that punitive remedy, I'll set that aside and just love you. I'll set that aside and just forgive you. And so what that tells us in our relationships is if I have a problem drinking, if I have a problem with physical abuse, if I have a problem with uh, any number of things that really does harm to folks, I need to get that fixed. I need to get that fixed. That's not something that can continue. And, and it does need to be addressed. We can't continue to enable uh, bad behavior along those lines. Now, from time to time, you come home from work, you throw your socks on the ground, on the, on the floor, right, instead of putting them in the hamper. Right? You sit at your favorite chair, you just take your... You know, your, your socks off, shoes and socks off or whatever. Can you imagine living with someone that they just left their socks on the floor in a pile all the time? Would that be a happy day for you at your house? Depends on if you're the one that picked up the socks or not, right? Uh, it depends on if you're the one just leaving your feet out. That, that's kind of a, a different deal, right? In the sense of that's not a real injury, unless you're the one that has to pick up the socks, I guess. But even then, you would still need to say, you're right, I need to pick up my socks. I need to be a responsible adult and just put my socks in the hamper. There are some things, what I'm trying to say is there are some things that are bigger deals to deal with than others, right? For our young people, you've heard me say it before, is the person you're dating, if the person that claims to be your friend hits you once, hits you twice, they're going to do it again. If they use abusive language with you, if they tr speak to you in a way that demeans you, that, that makes you feel less than human, they're going to do it again. You need to think about that before you get married to the, the person. It's not going to get easier. It's going to get worse. But as Christians, there are times in our lives when we do little things that hurt each other, and we need to make that right. We need to seek that forgiveness. What we see in this example, this idea of propitiation, is not just overlooking something and denying that it happened or enabling it to continue to happen. It needs to be addressed. And, and, and Jesus did that on the cross. Jesus paid the price of our sin on the cross and then gave us forgiveness. 
sometimes we need to acknowledge that someone is trying their best to overcome something in their life. There's a difference between someone that's truly trying to overcome something in their life and someone that just uses that as, as an excuse to continue being bad things. We need to acknowledge sin in our lives and, and get rid of it and know that God forgives us. And we need to forgive one another in that. We need to think about, especially again, our young people, things that people do that hurt us. And in our relationships, we need to avoid those things that cause other people pain. And you need to get past those things uh, if you're the one doing them. And sometimes the little things in life, if you're going to forgive, you need to forgive and let those, let those things go. The example that we see is covering over the sin, acknowledging it happened, stopping the behavior, and then still loving the person. Biblical love is not a self-seeking love. It is a difficult standard. But if we all practice that in our lives, it can become a life-changing behavior. And we can grow closer. And we can love one another and have stronger relationships. You can have this relationship with God by being united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's why Jesus came so that our relationship could be healed, so that we could be one with him, so we can be reconciled with him and be back in that right relationship. And if you're here this morning, you need to be restored to your relationship with God by being united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. If that's what you need to do, I want you to come now as together we stand and sing.